Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Who the hell do you think you are? With the in crowd, because I listen to the Stick to Wrestling podcast as one of the worst songs ever. My name is John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. If you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we will give you a raw bone podcast. This is the only wicked good podcast out there. It is the People's Podcast, and it is the major league of professional podcasts. Now, before I bring on my guest, I just want to invite everyone to follow me on Twitter. Uh, it's the stick to wrestling show, but I don't always stick to wrestling on Twitter, especially during football season and during the world series. We do more or less stick to wrestling on our stick to wrestling Facebook group. Um, it is usually cool conversation with cool people. Uh, a lot of good information out there. I post classic results pretty much every day and we have the we just finished the 1993 Fantasy Crockett Cup tournament, which was won by Steve Williams and Terry Gordy. And starting sometime this week, we're going to be doing the 1982 Fantasy Crockett Cup tournament. So if you listen to this podcast and you like it, you like this the Facebook group. Now, recently we have been doing territories on this show, and it's worked out. It's been fun. I want to bring on someone who has seen it all from Mid-Atlantic Wrestling. We're going to be talking about that. He's been on the show before. It's been too long. And his North Carolina Tar Heels destroyed rival North Carolina State this week. Mike Gunner. Mike, thanks for coming on. My pleasure, John. Glad to be back. Glad to have you here. So we're doing a Mid-Atlantic podcast. How? When did you start watching Mid-Atlantic Wrestling, okay. Mike? I grew up in uh, South Alabama and lived there until I was 15. So. Uh, in January of 1971, I moved from a real to small town in South Alabama. And I've been a fan of Gulf Coast Championship Wrestling. I grew up watching it. And uh, my family moved to Raleigh, North Carolina in January of 1971. And so uh, I looked for the wrestling on the TV there and came across Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. And in those days, it was a tag team territory for the most part. Yes. Uh, Paul Jones and Nelson Royal, George Becker and Johnny Weaver, Rip Hawk, Sweet Hanson, Brute Bernard, Missouri Mahler were all the, you know, they were the mainstays. Uh, the only singles guy, I guess you could say was, uh, that I remember for the most part was uh, Abe Jacobs. He was like, um, the main single star there in those days. You know, one reason everyone should want to join our Facebook group is you get to ask questions about the current, uh, podcast usually if i know what we're going to be talking about i'll say hey you know let's feel free to ask a question about 1970s mid-atlantic wrestling and we have one that transitions into what mike's talking about jerry joy asked how was it to witness the the territory change from a from a tag team to a hard-hitting singles territory you know where the singles are the main events like when did that change mike um probably let's see i went to college in the fall of 73 so while I was in college, it's when it started changing over the early part, you know, that he brought in Johnny Valentine uh, and those guys and started becoming more of a singles territory. And they were phasing out a lot of the tag team guys like uh, Ruben Bernard, the Missouri Mahler left the area. They split up Rip Hawk and Sweet Hanson and all that stuff. And about the time they split up Swede and Rips, when they brought in Ric Flair and made him uh, Rip's uh, nephew. And- oh, I didn't know that. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, so when Ric Flair first came in, he was, you know, Rip Hawk's nephew. And then years later, he just, that went away, and he became the cousin of the Andersons. I was going to say, Rick's so always no, seems no to have to have family member. No explanation at all. <laughs> but my favorite is with Oli. I mean, Oli and Gene. Like, sometimes they were his uncles, sometimes right. they were his cousins, sometimes they were, I don't know. They were all over the place with that. Right, right. for sure. Now, I have heard over the years that really it was Wahoo McDaniel and Johnny Valentine sure. that Absolutely. kind of turned the corner as far as the Mid-Atlantic Territory going from a, a, tag team, uh, a tag team territory to a singles territory. Is that somewhat accurate? Yes, without a doubt. Okay. Now, when, when was this? This was like 74, 75, right? Right. Absolutely, yes. Okay. And from what I heard... 
these were some of the most hard-hitting, believable, brutal matches ever. I mean, have you ever seen Wahoo versus Johnny yes, live? Yes. Well, last time I was on your show was we, we did the Greg Valentine and, and Johnny Valentine two-parter episode, and I did see uh, Valentine and Wahoo once at, at uh, Dorton Arena in Raleigh. Okay. I was, I was in college and I did go to that match because I wanted to see the brutality. I think it was even a strap match if I can, if I, my memory serves me right. All right. And was it as rugged as? Oh, as, it was. As, okay. All right. Now let me see. Now you wanted to talk about a show. Well, let me ask you this: When was the first time you went to a live show in Mid Atlantic Wrestling? The very first one was in September of 1972. I was a senior in high school, and like I said, I grew up watching. Gulf Coast Championship Wrestling, but in 1969, our small town got a another station, and uh, it had Championship Wrestling from Florida. So I started watching it in February of '69. So I saw all the you know the people like I'd never seen before. Like the very first show I ever saw of Florida was the show after Dory Funk won the t- championship from uh, Gene Kaniski. Oh wow! So when I moved to North Carolina, in addition to the Mid Atlantic, they also one of the stations here had the Championship Wrestling from Florida on here, so I could continue watching that. And so in September of 1972, they ran a card in conjunction with Championship Wrestling from Florida. And the main event was Dory Funk Jr. defending the title against Jack Briscoe. Oh, nice. Yeah. And uh, Funk won by disqualification after about 45 minutes. And the semi-main event that night was Eddie and Mike Graham versus Bobby Shane and Rock Hunter. So I thought that was an interesting match. Oh, yeah. And those are, those are all Florida guys. Yeah. And then... The next match was a mixed tag team match with Two Ton Harris and Billy the Kid, a midget versus Abe Jacobs and Bobo Johnson. <laughs> oh, I never liked those. <laughs> I know. Uh, and then uh, Nelson Royal and Dennis McCord wrestled Crusher Carlson and Joe Soto. Dennis McCord, that rings a bell. That's Austin Idol, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And then Frank Hester and Sandy Scott wrestled. Eddie Suzuki wrestled Jim Dillon, which I guess is J.J. Dillon. And, uh, Billy Hines and Terry Sawyer wrestling. And the interesting thing about Billy Hines, he was the mainstay in Gulf Coast when I was a kid growing up. And he was actually the first wrestler I ever met when I was like 12 years old and got his autograph and all that stuff. So it was kind of interesting to see him wrestle up here in the Mid-Atlantic area. The first wrestler I ever met was, was he, he was a jobber in the WWF, strictly like a guy who was on TV all the time. His name was Steve King. And, you know, I lived near, you know, football players for the new england patriots and steve king was huge he was every bit as big as one of the patriots linebackers wow i mean what did you get that impression when you first met, met a wrestler yeah he was pretty good well the heinz brothers were not that tall they were probably five ten or so but they're pretty stocky and um yeah he was, he was pretty good size no king was like i would say five seven five eight at best but he was i mean he was wider than he was tall. It was pretty oh, amazing. Right. Right. All right. So you went to the 1981 U.S. title tournament. Uh, where was, in what city was that held? It, it was in Charlotte. It was on a Sunday afternoon. Okay. And, and what happened was Wahoo McDaniel was the U.S. heavyweight champion, and, and he had been feuding with Roddy Piper. So Roddy Piper, on, on television, Wahoo, Wahoo was wrestling Jacques Goulet, and Piper had hired Abdullah the Butcher as a bounty hunter unknown to everybody. And, Abdullah ran in the ring and just cut up Wahoo bigger than hell. And he bled all over the place and he had to forfeit the U S championship. I think it was like the third time he had had to give up the championship for for whatever reason. Anyway, they had a 16 man tournament for that on October 4th in 1981 in Charlotte. And in the, it was a Sunday afternoon and Wahoo could not be in the tournament, but he wrestled, he did wrestle Abdullah that day. But uh, this tournament had, the first round matches were Pat Patterson and Mike Davis, Nikolai Volkov and Ricky Steamboat, Leroy Brown and the Super Destroyer, Ron Bass versus Ivan Koloff, Sergeant Slaughter and Johnny Weaver, Steve Muslin and Jay Youngblood, Dusty Rhodes and Jacques Goulet. And that was the first time I'd ever seen Dusty Rhodes in person. And Ron Ritchie wrestled Ole Anderson. The funny thing about that first round matches is Dusty Rhodes did the job to Jacques Goulet in like three or four minutes. <laughs> so I was so excited to see Dusty and live for the first time he did a job to Jacques Goulet of all people (laughs) Jacques Goulet had a very interesting 1981 because he got pushed in Florida as the the southern heavyweight champion and today is the first time I ever heard that he got a pinfall over Dusty Rhodes that's that's wild it's very wild 
For those unaware, Sergeant Jacques Goulet is best known as Rene Goulet in the WWF. Also, Steve Muslin is probably best known as Steve Travis in the WWF. So, yeah, and who went on to win that? To win that tournament, I think it was Sergeant Slaughter. Yes, Slaughter and Steamboat were in the finals. Okay, that mu- in '81, that must have been an excellent match. It was very good. And I also enjoyed the Pat Patterson and Ricky Steamboat semi uh, quarterfinal match too. That was a very interesting match. You know, Pat was getting on in years by 1981, right. but he could still wrestle an excellent match in his sleep. He was just one of those guys. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Now, there's a bunch of stuff I want to talk about, but you went to. Starcade 83, Starcade 84, Starcade 85, and Starcade 86. And then they moved the event to Chicago in 1987. You got to share some memories from that. That's crazy. I also went to Starcade 89 in Atlanta and and 90 in St. Louis, but uh, those were WCW days, not mid Atlantic days. Yeah, the the Starcade 83 was was incredible. I mean, the build up for it was awesome, you know, flair for the gold, all that stuff. The card I thought was excellent for the time. They had advertised that Hulk Hogan was going to be on it, but obviously he did. He wasn't. And, uh, I mean, the crowd was just incredibly electric that night. It, even though the Flair and, and uh, Harley Race match was not the best in the world and Gene Kaniski was not the best referee, it still ended up being pretty pretty good. And uh, the pop at the end was just incredible. Oh, I mean, it was – I've seen it on TV. It sounded like a rock concert when Flair finally regained the title from Harley Race. Without a doubt. Now, let me let me ask you about the way Ric Flair was booked. I mean, he seemed to change from good guy to bad guy left and right in the 80s. I mean, he... I mean, when was it that he finally... Not even finally. I think it's in sometime in 1984, he was being portrayed as a bad guy again. Do you remember, like, when that happened and what happened? Well, what happened was Dusty wanted to be in the main event against him, and he, uh, he, uh, you know, Flair had to be a bad guy to, to face Dusty. So they, uh, that's when they turned Flair heel and, you know, booked him against Dusty all over the place. Uh, that is correct. Dusty had to be the number one baby face. He wasn't going to let Ric Flair stand in his way. For sure. What did you think of Starcade 84? Like as far as. Not, not, not just the card, but like the buildup and everything coming in. Well, to me, it was a letdown from the year before. Yeah, obviously. But um, you know, it was a, it was an enjoyable card, and but it was no, nowhere near the buildup of uh, of '83 for sure. Now I remember the day I found out that there was going to be a WrestleMania two, which I hadn't even considered. Uh, I read it in Wrestling Eye magazine. When did you figure out? that there was going to be a Starcade 84 or did you figure it out when they announced it? I kind of figured there would be because of the success of, you know, 83. Yeah. But I didn't really know, I guess, until they announced it. All right. What was, what was the best part about Starcade 84 for you? Oh Lord. Uh, John, uh, I don't even remember to be honest with you, the, the specific, but I always love these cards like that. Uh, seeing people I'd never seen before live yeah i mean I, I really liked the idea that dusty you know and i'm i'm figuring figuring this out like reading the magazines but that dusty had you know officially left florida for the mid-atlantic area which is a really big deal in 1984 that dusty was finally gone from florida right. and you you now had what i thought were the two top guys in the nwa Ric Flair versus Dusty Rhodes, like number one versus number two, fighting each other at a major event. Right, for sure. <laughs> All right. But, the, uh, you know, the referee stoppage was kind of weird, though. Yeah, let me, finish. let me ask you about that. Joe Lewis was the, was it Joe Lewis who was yes, the referee? it was. Yeah, okay, was. I was like, am I mixing him up with no, another no. boxer? I actually should not uh, be doing no, that. No, actually, smoking Joe Frazier. Thank you, Lou. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, well, Joe well, Lewis, Joe yeah, Frazier. Yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I was like, wait, I'm I'm talking. I'm like, wait a minute, Joe Lewis is a little bit too yeah, old for this. But it felt like they were building up a Joe Frazier versus Dusty Rhodes match, which never happened. I mean, right. did you get that impersonation? Did did Dusty did Dusty start talking about it on TV afterward, or what happened? He yeah he you know he did an interview about smoking Joe. 
did me wrong, but you know, I, I never thought they would have a match at all. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, in a way, I, I look back and and like Vince hadn't even done WrestleMania yet, uh, but he did, had brought in Cindy Lauper. I don't know if Mr. T had been no, Mr. T hadn't been brought in yet. So I was thinking maybe Dusty was was ahead of the uh, the curve, but you're thinking nah, that they just had a dumb yeah. finish. Right, right. I, I think it was just a dumb finish. <laughs> okay. Uh, now, one one thing about that, I, and I meant to bring this up. I guess I'm bringing it up now. Um, I was at the very first match Ivan, Co- I mean uh, Nikita Koloff ever had. Oh wow. Yeah, and you know he was in he was on that card in Starcade '84. He wrestled a squash match against Bret Hart, who was uh, uh, Barry Horowitz. Yeah, Barry Horowitz, absolutely. At a TV taping here in Raleigh in 1984 first time i'd ever heard of him I went, holy shit who is this guy and uh he was so jacked up and everything i couldn't wait to get home after that card called dave Meltzer, and he said i've already heard <laughs> <laughs> you know that i mean it just brings back memories like i would go to a wwf tv taping and i get home at like literally one two in the morning and i would call dave because I, that's my civic duty to let dave know exactly what happened i guess you Felt the same way. Right, I did. All right. Starcade 85. Now, we now we're all seeing the buildup on WTBS. Great angle where Ric Flair tells Dusty, hey, stay out of my business. I don't want to be buddies with you. Don't save me on TV or anywhere else. And then we have the cage match. Ric Flair, who's a tweener at this point, right. against Nikita Koloff. Ivan Koloff and I think Crusher Khrushchev both got involved. Dusty runs them off, and you see Rick on his can yelling at Dusty, saying, I told you to stay away. And then Ole and Arn hit the, hit the ring. They break Dusty's ankle. Rick officially is no longer a tweener. He is a hardcore heel, and now we're getting the big match. Rick Flair versus Dusty Rhodes, second time at Starcade, and you were there. Or well, was that in Atlanta? Well, the, that part was in Atlanta. Ah. All right. So how how did you feel, and how did the Charlotte feel? Charlotte fans feel. Greensboro. Greensboro. Oh, Greensboro. I'm sorry, you are correct. The Greensboro fans. What was the general feeling about Starcade halfway being moved to Atlanta? I think overall people were, were not real happy about it, but the, you know, I think it pretty much sold out, and uh, it was a hot crowd, and you know, we had the lesser of the matches for sure, but um, we we still had. Um, Magnum TA versus Tully in the I Quit match, and we had the Rock and Roll Express versus uh, Ivan and Nikita. So those weren't bad matches. Oh no! <laughs> I mean, Magnum and, and Tully was. I mean, I remember the first time I saw it uh, on videotape, maybe six months later when it finally came out. I, that match blew me away, and you got to see it live. Right, right, right. <laughs> All right. Starcade '86, same thing. We have the split. We have. The newly turned Nikita Koloff in the cage, or not, not in the cage this time, excuse me, in a match against Ric Flair. I mean, what was that like? What was the how was the crowd with the newly turned Nikita Koloff? Well, they they were they were behind him, but I don't think they wanted him to beat Flair at all. I think huh. uh, you know, I, for the most part, at least in Greensboro, they weren't. You know, that match took place also in in uh in Atlanta, not in Greensboro, but I think it, uh, I, uh, I think the crowd, at least the Greensboro part wanted Flair to keep the championship. That is interesting. I I always thought they waited far too long. And when I say far too long, I mean, years too long before they turned Ric Flair. I mean, it it seems like not only the North Carolina crowds, but the crowds in general just loved Rick. Right. Oh yeah, Absolutely. And in in Greensboro, I mean, he's your he's almost the hometown hero. I mean, he's not from there, but it's his, his adopted hometown. And you know, North Carolina is more right. his adopted home state. Right. And I think the crowd picked up on that, and they just never really got into booing the horseman. No, not at all. And uh, that was the night. Uh, that's when I first met Dave Melser. He flew into North Carolina. I went with me to that card, and uh, we were on like the third row, and. Uh, when when they had the scaffold match with the Road Warriors and the Midnight and Cornette fell off, we just looked at each other and went, holy shit, he's hurt. Yeah, I remember Man. Jim saying that the idea was 
that he was going to fall down off the scaffold and Bubba was going to catch him. Right. right. And I'm like, that does not sound like the best idea I have ever heard. No, not at all. (laughs) I mean, Bubba was a huge guy, and I'm sure he was as strong as a bull, but we're looking at a 230, 40-pound guy falling from that height. Not the best idea I've ever heard. Let me tell you one real quick story before this. Uh, I used to work in the furniture industry, and we had these like 10-day-long sales conferences, so twice a year. In, in October, it was in October, April. In October, early October, I had to get up one morning and drive over for a couple-day sales meeting before this conference started. And in the car, I was listening to the radio, and I heard the, every newscast every 30 minutes was talking about a terrible wreck last night in Charlotte, North Carolina. Magnum TA was critically injured, and he's in, uh, he's in, injured, in critical condition in the local Charlotte hospital. I went, holy shit. Cause yeah. Uh, that was the night after it happened. So I get to the meeting and I have a, like 30 minutes before it starts. So I run to the payphone and I dial and I call Dave Meltzer. It's like 1230 my time. So it's 930 his time in the morning. And he didn't answer, but the girl he was living with at the time answered the phone. And I said, is Dave there? And she said, no, he's at the gym. I said, damn, this is a, I told her who I was. And she said, oh, I know who you are. He's, I know he's going to Thanksgiving to come go to the wrestling matches with you. I said, yeah. I said, I got some news for him that can't wait because I knew he, it was on a Wednesday morning and I knew he published on Wednesdays. Now I had to get it to him. I said, Magnum to you was in a car wreck last night. He's in critical condition in the hospital. She said, I'll let him know. And he actually, that issue at the very last page of that issue, he put a, like a one line thing, Magnum to hurt in a car wreck. I'll have more details next week. And I talked to him. He said, he said, if I didn't know you as well as I did from talking to you, I would never post post, you know, put, published that without confirmation but he said i knew you wouldn't be lying about it and so he yeah broke the news that way i I remember one of my friends saw it in usa today and he mentioned it to me and i'm like you know you don't know how serious it's okay he's in a car wreck and then magnum came on in a pre-recorded segment it was like the first segment that saturday and they put a graphic, like, recorded, I don't know, October 12th, 1986, and I was like, uh-oh, this is serious. Yeah, they they tried to make it sound like Magnum was eventually going to come back, and, right. I mean, the first time I saw him was at, I believe the first time I saw him was at the 87 Crockett Cup, right. and I'm like, okay, if he's still, still like this six months after the wreck, I don't think he's going to be wrestling again. Right, right. So anyway, I'll tell you what, we have another question for you. Steve Generali wants to know, what was it like to be a fan of Mid-Atlantic Wrestling and one week in 1978, Buddy Rogers shows up and is on the roster? How do you wrap your head around that? I know, really, it was uh, crazy. Just he wasn't there, and then all of a sudden he was there. <laughs> so did he? Did Buddy Rogers wrestle a lot, or was he primarily, primarily a manager? He was primarily a manager. I think he started out as like a referee for one of, uh, I think that's part of the way they turned Ric Flair the first time is uh, Buddy Rogers was, was refereeing one of his matches and it, he cost him the match or something. I believe that's how it is. Uh, I believe that's what happened. I believe. I tell you, for anything Mid-Atlantic, you're looking for any Mid-Atlantic news, history, anything, go to the Mid-Atlantic Gateway. It's midatlanticgateway.com. My good friend Dick Bourne and his partner Dave Chappell run it. And it is awesome. It has any kind of history about Mid-Atlantic you'd ever want to know. I have been to Mid-Atlantic Gateway. It is one heck of a site. I haven't been there in like a year. I'm going to go back there since this is over. <laughs> I, it's, it, I do wholeheartedly endorse that site. But anyway, one thing I wanted to ask you about um, was turns. So Buddy Rogers basically screwed Ric Flair in a match. Do you remember who he was wrestling? Uh, not off the top of my head. I'll have to look it up. But. Let's see. Yeah, he's wrestling Dusty Rhodes for the U.S. title. Okay. And Special then match. Buddy more or less became a manager. Do you remember? I remember he managed Jimmy Snuka. Right. Who, that's another turn I've got to ask you about. Iron Sheik. Who else? Well, I think Ivan Koloff maybe. and then But then Ivan Koloff and the Iron Sheik had a feud. Mm-hmm. Which, um, but I think they were both still bad guys, both still heels when they feuded. But uh, that's one of the wildest interviews I ever saw in a localized interview. They had a cage match in Charlotte, and Ivan Koloff was doing the interview for their in the Iron Sheik's match. And he, they it was a cage, and they had the you know a panel of the cage in there, and he was standing behind it, and he he grabbed a head of cabbage and started running it back and forth across the cage, and it was just shredding it to pieces. And he said, 
this is what your head's going to look like, Iron Sheik. <laughs> I remember a bloody cover of Inside Wrestling with Iron Sheik versus Ivan Koloff on it. And I was a bit taken aback because I didn't know they were feuding. And I was like, this would be a, a, an interesting tag team. And they were for a while in Georgia in like 82, 83. Do you remember remember what started that heel versus heel feud? I have no idea, John. Okay. I just no. remember it happened, and I remember the, the local interview and all that stuff, And but I don't remember why they feuded. Sorry. All right. So I, I'll tell you, one of the most stunning turns in my lifetime, I remember being in New York waiting to get on, on the train to get back to, Bo- to Boston, uh, actually back to Providence, and I, I'm like, you know, in – Penn Station, like looking through the magazine stand, and the new issue of The Wrestler is out, and I buy it. And I'm going through it. I'm, I look at the ratings, and Paul Jones is it, they have him as the number one most hated wrestler. Right. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Not Paul Jones. He would never turn. Do, do, you, do you remember, like, was that a total surprise for you when, when Paul Jones turned on Ricky Steamboat? Yeah, it was. It was. And, uh, that just killed him too, because when he turned back face, it he was never the same. No, he wasn't. Um, and I think one reason is, in my opinion, they turned him back too soon. Right. All right. So, I mean, was it just the the mentor versus student thing, or I, think I know John, I think they played up like Jones was like getting jealous of all the uh, attention that Steamboat was getting, and you know, it's like yeah, like you said, the mentor and the student, and. Uh, the student was passing the teacher and he just, uh, and they were in a two ring battle Royal in Charlotte and Jones turned on him and that's how he became a bad guy. All right. Yeah. Cause I remember they were NWA tag team champions and Paul was kind of, you know, the, the captain of the team. And then I read in the wrestler that there was a two ring battle Royal and Paul just decided he wanted all of the money. He didn't right. want to share with steamboat. Right. That was like in the late uh, 90, late 78 or something. And then, the, the all 79 he was like a a heel and he and von Raschke won the nwa championship and all that stuff and then in early 80 he and the baron lost the titles of steamboat and young blood and he disappeared for a, what, four or five months and then came back as a baby face so yeah i, I mean i always thought there there's some guys that you just don't turn i i think paul jones was not one of those guys but at the same time they should have let him be a heel for a lot longer, in my opinion. It was such a hot turn. Right. I mean, I remember seeing a a picture in Inside Wrestling. It was Paul Jones bookended by Ric Flair and Greg Valentine. They all had their arms around each other. And and to me, it was just shocked. I was only 13 years old. It's like, how can this be? How can Paul Jones be hanging out with these guys? Right. All right. Do you remember anything about Blackjack Mulligan's babyface turn? I sure do. That's probably one of the greatest turns in mid-Atlantic history. You know, Blackjack was getting a little on up there in age, and so they were doing, the, I guess, teacher and mentor again because they were supposedly best friends. They had a band. They traveled together and all this stuff, and uh, best friends. And then Flair just got a little, I guess, jealous. The angle was called The Hat in the Robe, and they were doing a, uh, a TV taping. You know, they were, ha- they were having a little bad, you know, talking back, you know, back and forth. and so. Uh, what they did was Flair came out wearing this hat of Black Jackson's cowboy hat that he had supposedly been given by Willie Nelson and uh, Waylon Jennings, and then he he decided to just tear it up. Then he had a match, and Black Jack came out in one of his robes and destroyed it. So they started hating each other and started feuding. That was a hot feud, and my, if I recall correctly, they sold out the I think it was the Charlotte Coliseum. Right. For the first time ever on the strength of Mulligan and Flair, which which speaks volumes. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Now we we in Mid Atlantic, it was for me reading it reading about it in the magazines, it was a territory that had a lot of big turns. And another big turn was as we talked about Blackjack as we talked about Jimmy Snooker, excuse me. Do you remember how Jimmy Snooker turned heel? I mean, he as far as I know had never been a heel before. Right. He was a world tag team champion with Paul Orndorff, uh-huh. and they just had some kind of falling out, I think, and he turned heel and was managed by Buddy Rogers, and he won the U.S. title as a heel. I don't remember exactly the, the exact genesis of why he turned or how he turned, but that's what happened on it. 
No, because I remember in the, the same magazine where I'm reading about Paul Jones' turn, I'm looking at the ratings that had Paul Jones as the most hated man in wrestling, and there's this listed as like the number two tag team, I want to say, is Jimmy Snuka and Paul Orndorff. Neither, I didn't know, first of all, I didn't know who Orndorff was, right. because the magazines just didn't talk about him. And number two, I was like, wow, Jimmy Snook is in the Mid-Atlantic area. And it turns out that, yeah, they did they kind of get the titles right away? Yeah, they did. They did. Uh, all right. And did they debut as a tag team? No, I don't think they, I think Snook was like a single. But then they got the tag, then they won the belts, and then they broke up, and he was a heel. Then he started teaming with Ray Stevens and Jimmy Snook, and they were managed by Gene Anderson. And right. They won the tag team titles, too. I always thought it was odd that they... For the Jimmy Snooker turn in the WWF, that they used Ray Stevens for that. And, you know, right. it's like, hey, these guys were tag team champions. Right. All right. In, I want to say it was mid-1980, they had one of the most incredible, I don't know if it was a turn or not, but they it was Jimmy Snooker and the Iron Sheik against Ric Flair and Greg Valentine. Greg Valentine t- took Gene Anderson's cane and allegedly broke Ric Flair's nose for real right. on with the cane. Now, I didn't get to see this. Like, what was the buildup like for Ric Flair bringing in Greg Valentine to take on Anderson's guys? I don't really remember the specifics on that, John, uh, but I know that they had a long history and he needed a partner. And he thought that since they were friends, he would get him to come in and be his partner for that. That was, to me, that was one of the, I mean, gr- like almost a dream feud because we talked about like uh, Paul Jones being the captain of the team for the longest time. To me, at least, it looked like the Ric Flair, Greg Valentine team. You know, Greg Valentine was kind of the junior partner and Rick was the captain. And now we have that dynamic again where it's, you know, okay, Greg Valentine has had enough of being the underling and he wants to be number one and he's going after Ric Flair. And if I recall correctly, Valentine won the U S title from Flair. He did. He did for sure. Okay. Did you get to see any of those matches? And if so, do you have any memories of them? I saw him wrestle several times live and in Charlotte, uh, when I I lived in Charlotte for five years after I got out of college. So I'd go to the Coliseum, you know, when I could and see the matches there. And they had some great, you know, a lot of great cards. I saw a lot of great Flair matches. He and Valentine, the, they did a lot of bloody matches for sure. All right. Now, did you strictly go to like the big shows or did you go to a lot of spot shows? Back in those days, I mainly went to the Coliseum in some of the TV tapings because they did, they did local TV around areas at like high school gymnasiums. And if I could get off work, I'd go do that and uh, see some of those. All right. Yeah. I, I mean, WWF, I, Starting in 81, I would always go to the Boston Garden shows, but some of the, you know, if you heard on TV, like, oh, you know, this coming Tuesday, the WWF's coming to Gardner, Mass, or, you know, Concord, New Hampshire, I'd immediately be on the phone if we weren't doing anything that night. You know, we're going, man. Right, 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 right. <laughs> you were a little bit older than me, though, so that, that I wasn't going to too many spot shows when I was in my 20s. Right. When I lived in Charlotte, I, I worked in the stereo business. So, like I told you the last time I was on about meeting Greg Valentine, but I met a lot of the wrestlers the last couple of years I lived in Charlotte, like 81 and 82. Uh, they would come in the store I worked at, and uh, you know, I'd recognize them and start talking to them. One was Barry Wyndham when he was wrestling as Black Jack Mulligan Jr., and he was surprised I knew who he was and all that stuff. Uh, but one that I met and talked to and got to know fairly well was Jack Briscoe. And oh, he, nice. He was, still a, he was still a baby face. And, I started talking to him and he was really nice. He was really friendly. And he, I told him I'd seen him in 72 wrestle Dory jr. And, and we hit it off and he came in a couple of times, maybe three or four times. And he said, if you're ever at the Coliseum, uh, and you see me stand outside the dressing room, cause they used to have outside the baby face dressing room, like those nylon ropes around a metal pole, kind of uh-huh. little area sectioned off for the wrestlers to stand out there. He said, if you ever see me come over and talk to me, so I did that a couple of shows and he'd always come over and call me by name, shake my hand and we'd talk. And then they had a, uh, they were having those rural tag team tournaments that they supposedly had all over the country. And, uh, it ended up being Ole Anderson, Stan Hansen versus supposedly versus Don Morocco and Wahoo McDaniel. But anyway, the night of the one in Charlotte, I was standing there and, uh, talking to Jack outside and Anderson and, and uh, Hansen were in the ring and they were beating up these 
young team, I forget who the team was and everything, and Jack's other talking to me while that was going on. All of a sudden, David Crockett comes to run over there and says, damn it, Briscoe, you're supposed to be in the ring. Because he's supposed <laughs> to make a save. And he, forgot, <laughs> he was talking to me and forgot the time, and he took off to the ring. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> funny. And by the way, I will, in my notes right in front of me, I meant to introduce you as Greg Valentine's favorite stereo salesman. So he, <laughs> I kind of blew that, but you saved that's me right. a little bit. That's all right. <laughs> also met Tim Woods, and he, he he had retired by then, but he came in a couple of times, and he actually offered me a job. He wanted me to go to work for some company he owned in Columbia, South Carolina, but I turned him down. All right. Now, at the end of 1980, a very young wrestler came in from the West Coast, Roddy Piper. He had right. been wrestling in Los Angeles in the 70s. Then, like 79, 80, he was in Portland. And then he finally makes the trip across the country, wrestling for what I consider his first real major league promotion in Atlantic wrestling. And he got a huge push right out of the gate, and he proved totally worthy of that push. I mean, what are your memories of Roddy Piper when he first came into Mid-Atlantic wrestling? God, I hated him. (laughs) But uh, he got over so much. You know, he was so uh, over as a heel, and he was so arrogant, so cocky, and he was a perfect fool for Ric Flair. They got, a, you know, they they had so much heat together, and uh, it was it was an incredible time. Uh, I mean, I I will put the, the the clip up on the Facebook page. They had perhaps the most magic seven or eight minutes of television ever. I mean, when Roddy Piper first won the United States title, and he comes out wearing a tuxedo and a kilt, which looked ridiculous which is perfect for a heel and then he's like unbuttons the tuxedo and i am the new united states heavyweight champion and rick flair comes out to confront him and it was phenomenal television do you remember seeing that live uh uh, uh, yeah i saw it on tv yeah for sure okay i mean what was what what was your reaction i was just in awe of of, you know how (laughs) over he was and how much heat he drew yeah he actually made his debut in the mid-atlantic here in raleigh at uh, Dorton Arena, and then the next night they filmed TV at the Channel 5 Studios here. And from then on, he went, uh, you know, he got stabbed and Raleigh almost died. Oh, I know it was that bad. Yeah, they, they said it was like a half inch from his, one of his, you know, from his heart. Oh, my God. So I saw him and Blair wrestle each other. I saw him and uh, Andre wrestle. I saw a whole bunch of stuff. He was just, he was just so over. But a funny story, and I don't know, I probably shouldn't say this, but my ex-wife, my wife at the time was a pharmacist in Charlotte, and Piper came into the pharmacy where she worked, and he was on some really heavy-duty antipsychotic drugs for uh, you know, depression and all. Oh, jeez! I thought you were going to say steroids. No, 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 no. Oh man! Ah, oh, well, that's that's not good to hear. But well, I mean, I'm glad he's glad he was trying to get better. Yeah, yeah. So, so. So I'm Roddy Piper. Like I had no idea that the stabbing. I mean, I want to say stabbings aren't serious, but I had no idea that like he was close to death. I read about it. In well, one of the, they said if it just been an inch over, it would have killed him or something. Oh man, yeah, because I read about it in the aftermags, and like you just don't know what to think as far as like the information. But that that's a true story. I didn't know that. All right, Greg Klein. Let's get a question in. When to you? When was it obvious that Ric Flair was going to be special? Oh God! Uh, early on, you know, seventy six, seventy seven, some, you know, sometime in, you know, early on when he was just, he was just on fire. I mean, as a kid, my favorite wrestler growing up was a a heel by the name of Don Carson, and he just strutted around and was cock of the walk. And Ric Flair had all that in him and more. So, all right, I, I mean, Ric Flair. This is going to sound weird. I he was my favorite wrestler before I even saw him on TV. I mean, the charisma. Right. just poured off of the, the pages of the magazines. I was like, you know, I couldn't wait to the day where he came to the WWF, which he never did. But five years later, I'm finally seeing him on cable. And it's like, okay, that wasn't just your imagination. This guy is that good. He's that good a wrestler. He's that good a talker. And he has the charisma. He sure did. All Absolutely. right. Now, Dusty Rhodes kind of changed the whole, whole ball game. When he came in in 1984, it seemed like he got rid of a lot of guys and brought in a lot of guys to replace them. He basically put a bulldozer to the territory. I mean, what was it like for you living out there, being a fan, and seeing 
just you know the promotion, like I said, getting completely changed around. Well, there have been a lot of people there before him. I guess that Dory Jr. brought in like Mosca Jr. and people like that that I wasn't sad to see leave. And uh, so you know, I, I didn't think any, I didn't think it would be quite as bad as it was as far as you know turn into the Dusty Rhodes show. But uh, you know, I wasn't that worried that it would be horrible or anything. Yeah, I mean, you probably, I'm guessing, you didn't know what was going on behind the scenes and that nah. Dusty was the booker. But, I mean, you know, I didn't know that. But I was like, wow, this promotion has changed a lot between Starcade 83 and Starcade 84. Right. Well, another one of my favorite guys was uh, the Masked Superstar. All right. And, and he was a bad guy, and I liked him then. But, and then he turned to a good guy, and uh, he and uh Paul Jones won the you know World Tag Team Championship, and he he had said if they won the championship he'd unmask, and they won it in Greensboro and he unmasked. But I was always a big Mass Superstar fan. Yeah, and he has an interesting story because he had been wrestling as one of the Mongols right in Mid Atlantic, and then he was able to you know come back right away as Mass Superstar and. I mean, did you notice, did you suspect for a second that, hey, this is one of the Mongols under a mask? I wasn't that familiar with the Mongols, so no, I did not. I had, okay. Uh, yeah, I had, when I was in college, I didn't follow it that close, as close as I had before or after, but I really liked the Superstar because I love those masks he wore. Yeah, he was selling them about 15, 20 years ago and then donating the, the proceeds to charity. I wonder if he has any mask left. Probably not. There's a guy on uh, Twitter that sells my superstar mask now. It's not him. I don't know. NWA legend, whoever that is, <laughs> my superstar mask. Are they like, he, are they authentic? Like he was selling ring worn masks. Oh, I would love to have gotten one of those. <laughs> yeah, he was, I mean, he was as soon as, and the funny thing about mass superstar. Now tell me if this is true. When he was in the WWF, he was the mass superstar in the magazines. He was the mass superstar. In Georgia, he was just the superstar. They didn't call him Mass Superstar. Did, did, did they call him that in Mid Atlantic? They called him Mass Superstar. Yeah. Okay. All right. So it was just Georgia where he was the superstar, apparently. Right. 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 All right. Let me tell you a funny story. A friend of mine, uh, well, my best friend in college, his brother was a couple of years younger than us, and he worked in Raleigh when he was in college at a uh, hotel right by. Uh, WRAL studio. So all the wrestlers would stay there when they were in town for the TV tapings. Uh-huh. And he told me that the mass superstar's name is William Edie, and he's from Atlanta, Georgia. So I, I uh, was at a card one time in, in, in Charlotte, and the superstar's walking by and I say, Hey, Edie, how you doing? And he dared a dagger through me, and he but he kept walking. He didn't say a word, but he just, if looks could kill, man, I'd be dead. Be- <laughs> <laughs> what year was this? Oh, God, that was in the, you know, probably 80, 81, something like oh, that. Oh, man. <laughs> that was back in the kayfabe days where you, you just did yeah. not do that. Wow, that's a nerve on your part, dude. I know. Well, <laughs> I'm a big guy, but he was he was, he was equally as big. <laughs> yeah, that, that's one thing, Mass Superstar. I don't think his legacy speaks enough to that. Like, you know, he was a great talker. He was a great cerebral heel, but he was a big guy. Yeah, he was. And he's another very, guy like that, athletic too. I thought. Oh yeah, he was a he was an excellent worker. And when he came up here to the WWF, he got over like crazy. We hadn't had a masked guy in main events in I don't know how long. I mean, the the masked executioners were the last masked wrestlers to get a big push up here, and that was 1976. So you know, the part I don't know. Part of me thinks that the the uh, era of the masked wrestler had gone away, which it kind of had, but he still got over in the WWF. And yeah, he was over in Atlanta. He was over in the Carolinas. He was something. Yes, he was. Absolutely. All right. Uh, let, let me see. I've got another quest- question from Melvin Hurston as we, as we round this one down. This one's a, kind of a complicated question, but which wrestler's second career messed up their reputation as to how, how great they were as a, as a wrestler. Example, Gerald Briscoe is known as a stooge. Paul Mo Jones is a manager, or on the other hand, their second career enhanced them like Jerry Lawler. Now, two names that has come up in this podcast, J.J. Dillon, 
was a great yeah, he was a he was well known as a wrestler, right. even though people only see him on TV as you know JJ Dillon the four of the four horsemen. And was he in mid was he in the Carolinas for long? No, I think he wrestled a lot in Florida. Uh, he wrestled some and you know, I wouldn't I don't think that long, maybe uh six, nine months or something. Okay. Yeah, because JJ, I mean, he was in central states, he was in Florida, he was a uh, a big star in Amarillo. I think he was one of the champions in Amarillo. And yeah, he was someone that was forgotten. Another guy that comes up, Don Carson. I mean, his biggest run was as the manager of the grapplers uh, on Southwest wrestling in 82 and 83, but he had a big run as a wrestler. Was he around in the Carolinas for a no, long time? He was he never was here. Favorite. I never saw him in the Carolinas. I saw him in the Gulf coast. Oh, that's right. But he wrestled everywhere though. Uh, all over the country. All over the South, mainly, you know, Memphis, who wrestled for uh, Ron Fuller and Southeastern and everything. I went to, I actually went to a uh, couple of those names you mentioned. I went to a, my first card at the Omni ever was December 8th, 1980. It was like the, the Friday night after John Lennon was killed on the Monday. Uh, and I went wow. to a card. I, I went down there with a friend of mine. And we went and saw wrestling on Saturday, on Friday night, the Atlanta Hawks and the Milwaukee Bucks on Saturday night and the Atlanta Falcons and the San Francisco 49ers on Sunday. So we ha- we made a sports weekend down there. But that wrestling card at the Omni was incredible. Like the opening match was Jerry Briscoe and Killer Khan. And Jerry Briscoe beat him. And then Ted DiBiase beat the Assassin number one. And they had some kind of women's deal. I forget what exactly that was. But uh, Don Carson was managing the Mongolian Stomper. Oh, that's right. And he beat uh, Jack Briscoe for the National Heavyweight Championship that night. Now, this is right when they first started, when they got away from the Georgia State title and started calling it the National Heavyweight Championship. Right. Is that right? Absolutely, yes. Okay, were the Freebirds there yet? Yes, they wrestled Ron, uh, wrestled Robert Fuller and Plowboy Frazier that night for the titles. Okay, and yeah, you know, that should have been a, I don't know, at least a little bit of a hint that, you know, hey, the, the days of this just being a territory or coming to an end. Right. I mean, you know, WTBS was starting to get national exposure and you couldn't just say, I guess you could, if you wanted to, but they didn't want to just call it the Georgia heavyweight right. championship. So, so they, things were changing. And they that also had a judo jacket match between Mr. Saito and wrestling two that night. And the main event was Ole Anderson versus Bill Watts with Bobo Brazil as a referee. Oh, Wow. Yeah. Well, I didn't know Bobo Brazil was in Georgia around that time. He just I, came I, as a referee. Oh, uh, okay. For that match, yeah. Uh, it was interesting. What uh, Oli had done, come out a couple of weeks before on TV and said, I've made a list of everybody that's righted me and my career's winding down, so I'm going to take care of all these slights I had. And the first name on that list is Bill Watts. And Watts said he would take the match as long as he could pick the referee, and they picked, he picked Bobo Brazil, and he won and all that stuff. And so that Oli dropped the angle of getting – Writing all the wrongs after that, <laughs> but that's neither that's not Mid Atlantic, so I'm, I don't should have brought that up. But anyway, no, we don't need to stick to strictly Mid Atlantic. I'm the one bringing up the WWF left and right. It's okay. cool. All right, so that's another thing I wanted to talk to you about. I mean, Paul Jones was a legend in the Mid Atlantic area. Yes, I mean he was the United States champion. He was the World Tag Team champion. He was a great heel. He was a great baby face. It kind of bothers me a little bit that he is remembered as crappy manager. <laughs> yeah, he was I mean, horrible. I, he, was horrible. he was not a good manager at all. Yeah. But you know, I had and this conversation took place like you know twenty years ago. We were talking about potential Hall of Fame guys, and I I don't think Paul Jones is an observer Hall of Famer. I think he's the next level down, right. where like you know he has his strong points. But it's just not enough. Um, but anyway, this conversation, I was like, yeah, you know, Paul Jones barely is like right on the cusp of the Hall of Fame, but he's not quite there. And this kid, this guy looks at me. He's like, are you crazy? He's one of the worst managers ever. And that was like to him, that was all he was known for. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah, totally. right in Florida, too, though. Oh, that's right. When he was throwing titles off the bridge yeah. and stuff like that. Right. All right. Well, anyway, we are out of time. Mike, thank you for coming on. It's been too long, and we're not going to wait that long before you have you on again. Sounds good, man. All right. And uh, I want to thank everyone for listening. We'll be back Uh, next week. One last thing, John. Oh, yeah, definitely. Big big shout out to my uh, longtime friend, Dave Flaherty. What a great job he did last week on your show. 
Well, <laughs> thanks very much. Wow, you're listening every week, as well as the rest of you should be. Uh, I want to thank our producer, Lou Kippelman, for all of the great work he does. Uh, believe me, there's a lot of good stuff behind the scenes. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. So long from the Granite State. This concludes our podcast day.